We, we, in human terms, we think of God's power just having, in human terms, right? And so that you'd have to yell and shout. But I don't think it necessarily has to be that way. God could have whispered it, and it would have happened. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Our Jesus story this morning is found in Matthew 21, verses 28 to 32. I found this article from uh, the Detroit Free Press. Sibling frustrated by brother's easy life. This is a column by Carolyn Hacks. It was published on July 28, 2015. Dear Carolyn, I have this overwhelming anger or jealousy toward my younger brother because of how easily his life seems to come to him. One example, I paid for community college on my own, and when I decided to go to a university, my parents co-signed for a semester, but said I needed to figure it out after that. I could not afford it, so I joined the military to get education benefits as well as health insurance. Now, two years post-military, I am finally able to use my education benefits. My brother never cared about school. We tried to persuade him to go, but he didn't want to go to college for something he didn't want to do for the rest of his life. We tried to talk him into the military, but he doesn't do well with authority. So, now my military father is going to let him use some of his education benefits. Think he's angry? He will get to go to college for free with no sacrifice. It's so frustrating. His recent desire to pursue school is because his girlfriend is pregnant. He has never been able to keep a stable job for long, and education would serve him well, but he also quits when things get tough. I had to sacrifice so much to just be able to afford to go to school. But he just decides he thinks he maybe wants to do something like human resources or accounting. Ha! If only you knew him. And snaps his fingers and, voila, college at your command. Doesn't seem right. And then he signs the note, sibling rival. Sibling rival. He's not very happy. Brothers are different, aren't they? In families, you can't, like, brothers are so often different. Two brothers opposite, it seems here, in this letter. Throughout history, brothers have been different. I grew up with brothers that were twins. And they were different. They were so different. It was Vernon and Alan, and they couldn't be more different. They were twins, but they were not identical twins, obviously. One was a giant of a man, and they and, and, and in school we called him horse because he was so big. His brother was the opposite. Their, their, their characteristics were opposite, too. His brother was skinny and, and slight, and we called him squeaky. <laughs> It was, these guys couldn't be more different. Love those guys. In the Bible, there are lots of differences when it comes to brothers. 
you know about Cain and Abel. The first brothers, they were different. They were different than one another. One was tender-hearted and one was angry, right? They were two different people. We have Jacob and Esau. God loved Jacob, but not so much Esau, right? Um, we've got Moses and Aaron. We've got Peter and Andrew. As different as brothers can be, they all have one thing in common. They all need Jesus, all of them. Every brother, every brother alive needs Jesus. And so Jesus starts another story. Last week we talked about two, a father that had two sons, and guess what? This father has two sons as well in Jesus' story, starting at verse 28. And so let's read about that. But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He, afterward, uh, he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted saying that and he went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise, and he answered and said, I'll go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they answered and said to him, The first. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Now, just to be Sure, context, we're talking, Jesus was talking to the rulers of the people and, and the, 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 the chief priests. And for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe. Love this story. Love this story. I'm going to look at four things. We're going to get, look, as we usually do, we'll look at the context of the story. Then we're going to look at our work, the evidence, and our challenge. And so first of all, the context, once again, again, it's so important to understanding the story and the timing of the story. Context, immediately before, that is verse 23, uh, the chief priests, it says, now when he came into the temple, okay, this is, just a wider context than that. This is Jesus' last week of life before he is crucified. And so just please note that. Now when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people confronted him. He was confronted. Jesus, they confronted Jesus. Now why would they do that? They confronted Jesus rude. They were so rude. Jesus was teaching and they, they challenged him as he was teaching. Who would do that? It's rude. Hey! Right in the middle of what he was saying. Right? When, when I was at the nursing home a few months ago, um, they felt I was doing wrong by not wearing a mask while I was singing, right? But they had the decency, and I appreciated it, until I was done, finished my song before they said anything. Right? And that's the right thing to do. They didn't wait until Jesus was finished his teaching. They just disturbed him right in the middle of his teaching. And then, but the, the, the context goes further back than that. And, and I want to make sure you know the complete context. Verse 18, now as they were heading to the temple, 
It was in the morning, and he was returning to the city. He was hungry. Jesus was hungry. And so he had, he had come in the day before. Jesus had come in on a donkey. Everybody was shouting, Hosanna, here comes the king. Yay! And then the next day, he comes. He's hungry in the morning. I guess they didn't get, it wasn't bed and breakfast. It was just bed overnight in Bethany, right? So, and so he was hungry, and he sees... It says, in seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. The disciples saw it and marveled. And they go, wow, what does that mean? Right? And so, and so Jesus is hungry. Now I've talked about this before in Mark chapter 11, verse 13. And this is, it, it's just amazing. Mark lets us know a little secret. It wasn't the season for figs. That's what Mark says. It wasn't the season for figs. And so why, why in the world did Jesus go over to the fig tree and expect anything from it? Right? Why? There's a message here, I'll tell you. Oh my goodness. And, and we'll come back to it. But, and, and so just before this now, okay, just before this, Jesus upsets the tables the day before in the temple, the money changers, okay? And so do you think the, the, the priests and, and those, do you think they were angry and mad and confused? And, and do you think they felt slighted by Jesus for, for, for coming, coming into their territory? They figured it was theirs. It belonged to them. You come into our turf and you do that. And so they were confronting Jesus because of all of that. Jesus had, the day before, had upset the money changers and said, my father's house is a house of prayer, and you've made it into a den of thieves. Well, I think they were offended. Now, why is that? Because, now, why would Jesus do that? He literally drives home the issue. Jesus quote is the perfect answer in verse 15 and but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did this was Jesus answer <laughs> this is Jesus answer to upsetting the tables they said and um, eventually they say by what authority do you do this right the next day by what authority are you doing all of these things but I love Jesus' answer. He didn't even, it's not even a verbal answer. It's a demonstration. Jesus' answer was a demonstration. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things out in the temple, he's, what he did, and the children crying out in the temple, I mean, he was healing. That, that's what he was doing. Jesus went and healed people. Right? People came to him and he healed them. And when they saw this, they couldn't say anything. Right? They, they, they just said, we, we, we've got to back off. And then the next day, they just couldn't handle it. They just couldn't wait any longer. Now, the Pharisees, along with the lawyers, and their lawyer friends, they complicated everything. Absolutely everything. It, it, what, it's not supposed to be difficult to come to God. It's not supposed to be. And yet they complicated. Uh, Rods are... Um, Himes, Esquire, a lawyer, gives an example of how frustrating this can be for the common person even today when 
you complicate things. And you all know, have heard of crazy lawyer language that, that, it, it, that is kind of dumb. Here, here's an example. If you wanted to give somebody something, you would just say, here, have this, right? That's, that's what you'd say if you... For instance, let's say you wanted to give somebody an orange, just a simple orange. You would simply hand it to them and say, here, I'm giving you this orange, and everybody's happy, right? Oh, thanks. Thanks for the orange. I was really hoping you'd give me an orange, right? And then maybe the other person maybe talks about it. But this is how a lawyer would give somebody an orange. This is, uh, um, I hereby give grant, bargain, self-convey, uh, sell-convey, quit-claim all my right title and interest in the concerning this chattel, otherwise known as an orange, together with all the apparatus, um, <laughs> apparatus, and says, okay, never mind. I practiced that word, dude. I can't even get it. Okay. Okay. Uh, there too of skin, pulp, pip, brine, seeds, and juice for the use of the beneficiary to himself and his assigns and personal representatives in free, simple, forever. Free from all liens, encumbrances, limitations, restraints, easements, covenants, restrictions, and conditions of whatsoever kind or character, and any and all prior conveyances, transfers, deeds, and other documentations now or on the contrary, now notwithstanding, with full power to bite, cut, suck, or otherwise to use said words, or otherwise to dispose of the same with or without its skin, pulp, pip, rind, seeds, or juice. And the person says, <laughs> no. and the person says, thanks. <laughs> right, thanks for the orange. <laughs> you know, I know, uh, I, I know a lot of people that, um, that how they deal with over-the-top legal issues, requirements, paperwork, whether it's at the elevator or whether it's in the oil field, right? And I, I know there are some things that just are so over the top and so crazy as far as paperwork and requirements that people take shortcuts, they copy and paste instead of filling it in. They don't even know what the paper says anymore. They just fill it in according to what they did before. They don't even read it anymore. It doesn't mean anything. It's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's lost its purpose. Or they complain, or they actually quit. I know people that have quit their jobs because the paperwork and the requirements to do the job are so strict and stringent that they can't get anything done, and they're so frustrated they just quit. They go find something else to do. No wonder Jesus said, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden take my yoke upon you. Why? Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said, and, and the reason he came up to this tree, and, I, and, and th this fig tree, it looked beautiful. And from a distance, there were lots of leaves, and it, you know, it might have 
could it bear fruit? It couldn't. And it represented the law and what the Pharisees and the scribes and religious leaders were trying to do. They were trying to earn their way to God. They were trying to do the works of God in their own willpower without the Spirit of God. You can't do it. And so the chief priests and elders want to know who gave him the authority to do these things. What things, you know, change everything. You're changing. You're changing everything. You're healing people. You're teaching stuff. We don't know what you're doing. So that's the context. And the immediate context is even better. Jesus says, you know, they, what, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus says, answered and said to them, I will all, I'll ask you a question, which if you tell me, I'll answer yours. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe John? Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude because all of these people believed him. Right? And so they answered Jesus and said, we don't know. We don't know. And so Jesus said, I'm not going to tell you then. But I'll tell you a story. So to our story, what I want you to notice is that the father expected both of his sons to work. The father expected both of his sons to work. And it's no stretch at all to believe that God expects his children to work in his kingdom. If you are part of God's kingdom, God expects you to work. Or, if you want to put it in our context, it's absolutely no stretch at all to believe that believers are expected to work or serve within the church they attend. Listen to Paul's description as to how the church is supposed to work. I want to read this from the Passion Translation and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12, starting at verse 12. Just as the human body is one Though it has many parts that together form one body, so too is Christ. For by one spirit we were immersed and mingled into one single body. And no matter our status, whether we are Jews or non-Jews, oppressed or free, we are all privileged to drink deeply of the same Holy Spirit. In fact, the body is not one single part, but rather many parts mingled into one. And so if the foot were to say, since I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body. It's forgetting that it is still a vital part of the body. And if the ear were to say, since I'm not an eye, I'm not really part of the body, it's forgetting that it is still an important part of the body. Think of it this way. If the whole body were just an eyeball, how could it hear sounds? And if the whole body were just an ear, how could it smell different fragrances? But God has carefully designed each member and placed it in the body to function as he desires. A diversity is required. I love that. A diversity is required. We're not all the same. 
but we're, we're, we're united in Christ. A diversity is required. For if the body consisted of one single part, there wouldn't be a body at all. So now we see that there are many different parts and functions, but one body. Do you remember the name Larry Walters? You ever hear that name before? I've told this story a few years ago. I love this story. It's one of my favorites. He was a California truck driver, and he had always dreamt of flying. He wanted to fly. His yearning was so great that, according to him, he said that if he never accomplished flight, he would have certainly ended up in the funny farm. <laughs> That's what he said. I would be in the funny farm if I couldn't fly. And so Larry recalled a time when he was a, born, uh, when he was a boy, he saw water balloons strung, uh, or weather balloons strung up at an army surplus store. And, then, and so he got this idea. And so at 11 a.m. on July the 2nd, 1982, he would take flight from, his back, from the backyard of his girlfriend's place. And what he did is he tied, 40, um, he tied like 42 eight-foot helium-filled balloons, weather balloons, to a lawn chair. And he tethered the lawn chair onto a Jeep. Right? And then he got on. And he packed his sandwiches <laughs> and a BB gun so that he could shoot them out, of, you know, to descend, you know, when he was done flying, when he was done having his fun. And, 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 and the lawn chair he had at like 45 degrees so, you know, that he would be comfortable and relatively safe. <laughs> 42 balloons, right? But guess what? As he got in, as he climbed, <laughs> climbed into his chair, the tether snapped, and uh, uh, before he was ready, and and like, whew, he uh, he went sky high, sixteen thousand feet in a matter of minutes. I mean, that's where the air, I mean, air traffic is, right? And as a matter of fact, as he was flying over Los Angeles, a, plane, a pilot said, uh, there's, a, there's a guy in a lawn chair <laughs> flying by here. And, and so he, he knew he was in trouble. I mean, th this was way higher and way faster and way more dangerous than he had suspected. And then he started, starting from the outside, he took his time because he was afraid that if he shot balloons on one side and not the other side, then, you know, it would kind of tip him over and he would be in danger. And so he started shooting balloons out, or, or weather balloons, and, and, and then in all the excitement, you know, oh yeah, he had his beverages too. Don't forget that. He had a beverage container. You've got to have a beverage container if you're going to do that. Don't forget that. Anyway, in his excitement, he dropped his gun. And so eventually, when he did eventually, he had ballasts. And so he, um, so that like, and the way he did his ballast, he had gallon jugs of water. And so that as he was coming down, he could, he could dump the water so that it would ease his descent. Well, his dis <laughs> he got... He got tangled up um, in um, 
uh, where was it? It was, uh, he got tangled up in some wires, in some power lines, and it knocked power out for 20 minutes in that neighborhood and everything. And then they promptly arrested him. <laughs> as he, but he did make it down safely. And when, and here's the thing. When the media asked him when, why he did it, I love his answer. He says, you just can't sit there. You just can't sit there. And I wish the church, the members of the church, would hear that message and hear it loud and clear. You just can't sit there. You can't. I remember a church I was pastoring in Saskatchewan, and, and I remember talking to a guy. He was in his 80s. And I asked him um, if, if, you know, he could volunteer for some stuff. Like, because in your 80s, you can pray. I mean, you can, there's lots of things you can do if you're in your 80s, right? And he said, and, and this is what he said, you know, he said that the, the church needs bench warmers. I'm a bench warmer. That's what I can do. And I absolutely disagree with that. And, and from what I just read from Paul, the church is made up of individuals that are gifted from God by his Holy Spirit, and when we, we all come together, we're expected to work and make God's kingdom work properly. And especially in the church. We're expected to do that. Our Father expects us to work. Well, let's look at the evidence. Uh, the simple question that Jesus asked was, which of the two did the will of his Father? And now, it's a fair question, isn't it? And it's a fair question for you and I as well. In John chapter 6, Jesus told a crowd of people that they shouldn't labor for food that spoils, but they should labor for food that endures to everlasting life. Then he announces to them that he would give them that, if they come to him, that he, Jesus would give them that. Then they said to him, What shall we do? that we may work the works of God. That was their response. Well, what can we do? They wanted to work, right? They wanted to be part of that. What can we do to work the works of God? Do you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, believe, believe, believe in him whom he sent. Who is that? As Jesus, believe in Jesus. Believe that I'm the Christ. Believe that I'm the Savior. Believe that God sent me. That's your work. That's what you need to do. And so we've, if we put this into the context of Jesus' story, that is, if we see Jesus' question as, which of the two did the work, believed in Jesus, believed in his purpose, his death, his resurrection, his sacrifice? So which of these two did the work of his Father? believed in Jesus then the question becomes very personal for us too doesn't it and so when Jesus asked the question in the first place there were only two possibilities there was one son who said that he, were, he, he would work but then he didn't but there was another son who said that he would not work but then he did that was the first son he said I'm not going to work I don't want to work it's too hot outside. 
I, my, my skin might turn to leather, you know, suntan. You can't have too much suntan. Now, um, here's where it gets really personal. If you were in Jesus' story, uh, which son would you be? If you were in Jesus' story, I know the answer for many of you. Do you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but not do what he says? That'd be the second son. Oh, yeah, I'll work. But then you don't do what he says, right? You don't do what he asks. Or are you the son who, ever, um, who repented and did what was asked? Now, if someone asked me what I felt the biggest problem facing Christianity in our time was, what do you think my answer would be? If somebody asked me, if somebody asked me, oh, thank you. Yeah, what's yeah, a great question. What's the, <laughs> what's, <laughs> what's the biggest problem facing Christianity in our time? Thank you. That's a great question. I want to answer that. Is there persecution? No, it's not persecution. Um, is there persecution in the world, and is that a problem? Yes, Christians are being persecuted. Um, is it lack of Bible knowledge? Um, well, that is a problem, and, and, and particularly in our time, we, have, we, we seem to have people that really don't know what the Bible says. I illiterate. People are biblically illiterate in our day. And that is a problem. But is it the biggest problem? No, I don't believe so. Is it a lack of commitment? Well, um, most churches have volunteer problems and have experienced volunteer problems for years. It's like 5 to 10% are carrying the load of the church, right, as far as volunteers go. And then, um, but no, that's not the problem. Uh, is the church culturally irrelevant? Well, people think so that are outside of the church. Uh, but forgiveness through Jesus is more relevant today than it ever was. Je we have forgiveness through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a relevant message. It's never not relevant. The number one problem in Christianity is our habit of not living out the gospel. It's not... It, it's saying one thing but doing another thing. I believe that's the number one problem facing Christianity today. In an article titled 10 Words for Saying One Thing and Doing Another, <laughs> I love this, and, and get this, this is by Martin uh, Lassen, and, and, and the article is supposed to help writers describe people like this. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a writing uh, form, right? And, and so to help you as an author to describe people the way you should describe them with words. And so he's got 10 words. It, it's just sad that I can use this to describe Christianity. So he's got 10 words for people that say one thing but do another. And the first word is contradicting. Now, usually done for personal gain, both statements can't be true, right? Contradicting. And a lot of Christians contradict what they say with what they do. Uh, hypocrite. The Cambridge Dictionary is, says that a hypocrite is someone who says they have particular moral beliefs but behaves in a way that shows that they are not sincere. Uh, unreliable. You know, I remember my dad 
saying that it was really difficult to hire Christians one time. That's a sad statement, isn't it? It was difficult to hire Christians because they were unreliable. That's what he said. Um, And so somebody who is unreliable, according to the Cambridge Dictionary, not able to be trusted or believed. Uh, The fourth word is liar. No one wants to be called a liar. Associated with the father of lies, you are, if you say one thing and do another, you're a liar. Right? You're living a lie. Uh, Do... Do, <laughs> I can't even say this word. Uh, duplicitous. Duplicitous? Duplicitous when someone is dishonest on purpose in order to deceive you. Like a liar, except uh, with malicious intent. Double dealing. That's duplicitous on steroids. <laughs> That's self serving. Capricious. How they act out when they believe depends on their mood, which can change suddenly. And so let me love you one day. Let me love on you. I know you're going through a hard time, and the next day it might. Come on, grow up. Take the loss like a man. Right? So one day it could be let me love on you. I know and I understand and I want to sympathize with you. The next day it might be something else untrustworthy. The author says whether someone chooses to go against their word or something comes up, they've broken your trust. And so untrustworthy. And then unpredictable. You can't depend on a person like that. And then disrepute. Disreputable. The Cambridge Dictionary, not trusted or respected, thought to have a bad character. A person of disrepute. Well, what's our challenge? Because we don't want any of those labels, do we, as believers? Right? Come on, amen. Somebody say amen. We don't want those labels on us. Our challenge for the... And and now, for the chief priests and the elders of the people, they should have heard this story... And well, they realized that Jesus was talking about them. They were the second son. They said that they would do God's work, and they didn't. Right? They should have figured it out. And the second son, what did the, what did the first son do? The first son repented. But in their minds, they were already doing the works of God, and they had no, no way that they wanted to repent. They had nothing in their minds saying that they would repent because they were already doing it. They had no reason to repent. In a few days, they would congratulate themselves for having gotten rid of this nasty man who would tell these stories, challenging them, and they crucified Jesus. Our challenge... Which son am I? Now, Paul encourages the 
the Ephesians, therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. Worthy of your calling, for you've been called by God. That's Ephesians 4.1. Now, so what is leading a life that is worthy? Right? And I truly believe it. It includes this one little word here that that we kind of get the wrong idea of about. This word, it's called repent. See, the first son repented. He said, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to work in the kingdom. I'm not going to work in the church. But he repented. What is repenting? What does it mean to repent? Does it mean to grovel and to cry and to... Ah, No. No, that's not... See, we get the wrong idea of repent. We, we think of repenting of maybe a Billy Graham crusade and, and people coming down and weeping. And, and it can be that. It, that absolutely can happen. When you discover that you are unholy and Jesus is holy and he still offers you forgiveness, there's something happens inside you that maybe the floodgates will open up and maybe you will cry. But maybe not. Repenting means simply, repenting means to change your mind, to turn around. And it's what the first son did. He said, I'm not going to go to work. I'm not going to work in the kingdom. I'm not going to support you, Dad. I'm not going to do it. And yet he regretted what he said. That's repenting. He regretted what he said, and he turned around, and he did what his father had asked him to do. That's what repenting is. It's turning around and going the other way. Dear sibling, this is the answer to the story at the front about the guy that was really mad at his brother because his life seemed so easy. Dear sibling, would you want this easy life if you could magically trade? I wouldn't. He's on a road that's ultimately so much harder than yours. If I could choose your path or his, I'd choose yours without batting an eye. Please ask yourself which you'd choose. Don't let money blind you to the hard path of your brother's dysfunction. And I would say to all of us, don't let the world blind you to the hard path of your brother's dysfunction choose Jesus. He said his burden is light. Choose Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus' burden is light. Thank you that Jesus is ready and willing to forgive. Truly, he is our Savior. We thank you for him. We thank you for that life is in him. And we thank you that he has a great plan and a great future for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.